Welcome to Upscale Journeys, the podcast that helps demand generation professionals decide how to effectively enhance their knowledge and skill set to advance their careers. I'm your host, Grant Bentley, Strategic Account Director for Inside Up, and today I'm happy to be joined with Allison Murdoch, founder of Trusted CMO, a marketing consulting firm for startup and growth stage companies to put foundational marketing in place. And before that, she has been a executive at a VP level for several different organizations, including Sixth Sense, Red Herring, and GigaOM. Allison, it's great to have you on the program today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, uh, let me start by asking, uh, what would you consider part of foundational marketing? Because that's something that you help uh, companies uh, improve on uh, right now. So let's talk about that. Yeah, so um, I work with companies um, that are sort of early stage, seed stage funded, all the way to growth stage. Um, foundational marketing at those early stages really means a marketing practice, not just people, but a way to drive awareness, a way to grow demand and um, a repeatable process mm -hmm. that then a team once hired can go in and follow to essentially help the company develop and grow effectively. You, many founders are not marketers by heart or even salespeople. So they need this sort of help to, to get things established. They know they need to do it. They just need help getting there. Yeah, it seems like uh, a lot of people come to marketing from other positions, other functions, whether it be sales or technology you know, a, a mm -hmm. chief product officer and, and marketing isn't necessarily something that is, is second nature to them. In fact, yeah. they probably think more that marketing is what we used to call corporate marketing, you know, just yes. the idea of brand and advertising. Well, actually, I don't know if I agree with that. I think corporate marketing, yes, to some extent, but if you're uh, with some of the earlier stage companies I'm seeing, it if it's a chief product officer, they think, oh, well, this is a product, it's product let growth. It's just going to grow on its own. We don't really need marketing. And, yeah. you know, that's a different type of marketing um, than something that's a classic enterprise sales. So, you know, part of our job is helping companies understand what a go-to-market strategy should look like. I, I wish a lot of founders were salespeople because that would certainly make it easier to have these conversations. But um, yeah. from my perspective, it's it's so interesting, the kinds of companies that I work with in different capacities um, in different industries. So, um, you know, and uh, that they trust us to help them, you know, put it together, a plan and execute on it to help, you know, drive their awareness, get in front of customers, uh, win, hopefully, yeah. <laughs> over time. Well, because we want to learn more about um, the ways in which mm -hmm. a career has moved from one stage to another, could you mm -hmm. give us a little bit of a storyline about how your career uh, moved from uh, practitioner level to uh, managerial responsibility and, and what you look for when you're considering uh, filling out a team that's going to help one of your clients with foundational marketing process. Sure. Um so I would say my career is very is very non-linear. I you know graduated from college and I was in an international relations major with a minor in French. I spent a lot of time traveling and mm -hmm. thought oh I'm going to go into diplomacy. Well, the idea of going back to graduate school and even and it'll make sense why the moment when I started entered my professional career an MBA it didn't make sense. Mhm. Mm 
Here's why. I started as a writer. I got out of diplomacy. I thought, probably not for me. Didn't want to go to graduate school to do that. But I started as a writer for a magazine um, in living in, while well, I was living in France. Hmm. And I came back to San Francisco and I, it was uh, 1994 when I had my first job in tech. It was, I was at Ziff Davis, which was the largest tech publication at the time when people still read magazines and Wired was around back in the day. Yep. And I started working for their Expos division, which at the time was owned by SoftBank, which now we all know who they are, but we didn't know them then. And they had blended a few different conferences together. So my job was writing content, helping with emails for attendee marketing, doing all sorts of stuff. And then I got pulled away into Red Herring, which was much 1997 it was starting wasn't what it became in the dot-com era very leading was, edge leading yeah, edge publication where the magazine was like largest publication ever but early days um where i was focused on leading the event group so i went from basically not being in tech to becoming a vp within three years and i'll tell and the reason why that happened to me is that i took some time off after one year of working at a law firm and then living mm. in france so i was ready to work and right and then from there, I had my own company for eight years called Dealmaker Media, also producing early stage conference events, um, most na namely Under the Radar, which was a very good source of startups for venture capital, corporate mm -hmm. acquirers, so forth, and moved into then product, where I kind of eventually, after stop at Gigome, found my way to Six Sense. Yes. What I would say, and what I and I work with a lot of young people, um, both at my company, we have interns and people that are um, also young in their career is the most important thing is showing that you are professionally responsible and proactive. What does that mean? So an example from when I was quite young and I just started this job at Ziff slash SoftBank, there was a conference we were working on and they had hired a very esteemed person to run this conference who really kind of didn't want to do much. <laughs> didn't really want to go recruit speakers, didn't really want to work on that. And I, you know, being somebody going, gosh, this thing's coming up in a few months, nothing's mm -hmm. coming from this guy, kind of bugging him for a while. And he really wouldn't respond. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to just have to do this. I know who the speakers are that they're going after. I'm going to email all of them and I'm going to get them. Anyway, long story short, my boss at the time said, oh my God, thank you so much for doing that. No one, ha you didn't have to do that. No one asked mm -hmm. you to do it, but you just went and did it because you saw mm -hmm. it needed to get done. Yeah, I have a, a probably a large sense of responsibility for a lot of things that probably I don't need to be responsible for, and I'm working on that. But at the same <laughs> time, I, you know, some of the people that have been, you know, working for me and done and and been successful in their careers later on, who were not also, you know, working at like Oracle and then Microsoft and all this stuff. That's the kind of initiative they showed is that they were like we have this problem and I think I know a way to solve it. And here's yeah. what I've done. So I think, you know, being. Without being asked to, right. Yeah. That's the yeah. idea is yeah, I remember the interview to. questions of um, tell me a time when mm -hmm. you showed initiative, this would be mm -hmm. a story that you would be able to tell. Exactly. And the sort of stories that you're looking for the folks that are, are mm -hmm. to be hired by your, your companies, your clients, Correct. those are the sort of stories you're looking for. Exactly. I mean, being told what having to be told what to do, that person's not going to last long with me, whether I'm at trusted sea or later. Right. And I, I imagine, you know, obviously they need guidance, but but mm -hmm. connecting the dots. And I always tell even my clients and other marketers I talk to, 
if we're working on something like a nurture campaign, I'm like, put yourself in the shoes of the person you're marketing to. Mm-hmm. You know, what would they think? What are the problems they have? They don't care about your product. They really don't even want to read your email. But what can you say that appeals to them? And that's the same thing with, you know, solving marketing problems is, well, if this were my business, what would I do? You know, mm-hmm. how would I create awareness? How would I, you know, sell to this customer? And what would I say? It's so it's people who can can think critically, you know, will do will go far. That's excellent. Let's talk about uh, our sales uh, compatriots, because, you know, when you're talking about pipeline and and aligning with uh, Mm -hmm. the sales uh, team, that's uh, also really key. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's a lot of CROs out there now that are taking uh, advantage of their position to try to force alignment of their sales and marketing functions. How would you uh, characterize the sort of challenges that are faced by the, the clients that you work with? And that really don't have the sort of sales processes that are aligning with their with their marketing spend, you know, because that to me, when you talk about leads and it's really inefficient for salespeople to be responsible for prospecting. I mean, they they should be closing, right? It is such a complicated topic. The easiest two two word responses it depends, right? right? Uh, it depends on how big the company is. Um, a lot of the companies I work with, the first people they hire are salespeople and they don't have marketing. So it's it's sort of like, let's go out and sell, but we need a bunch of things from marketing and we have no awareness. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you're building to that and then you're putting processes in place with sales and alignment as you go forward, right? Mm-hmm. You, you might be working in an account-based motion. So you're working very closely with sales to align on which accounts marketing is targeting and which ones sales believes that they can win and explaining how that would work. I I think that's one really great way to actually get alignment is to focus on the same accounts and not just marketing random amounts of marketing to try to do a bunch of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, More focus, better. You know, I, I also think that marketing as you kind of go up the stack and you're with growth stage companies, marketing is really under pressure to deliver a pipeline that's likely to close, right? And Mm -hmm. so, you know, there is often friction around how sales is handling uh, leads that come their way or the feedback they're providing. There's a lot of automation with that now, but, you know, marketing in some companies I work with that are growth stage companies, marketing's delivering 70% of accounts that are likely to close. So to your point, absolutely. They, you know, that's their job is close one, right? Right. Um, no, when you, but the nuance there is that BDRs or SDRs, whatever you call them, are kind of that glue between marketing and sales. And they mm-hmm. might report to sales, they might report to marketing, but they're mm-hmm. the ones that are out making sure that the appointments get set and so forth. So they're if they're part of the sales team, they're definitely outbounding and doing more than closing. If they're part of the marketing team, they're generating pipelines. They're getting, yeah. you know, sales qualified opportunities set for the for a sales to take it to mm-hmm. the other end. I also have seen um, in growth stage companies, we talked about it earlier, where deals get stuck in the pipeline. They get stuck in the middle. Yeah. It means that, you know, they've had oh business case. Yes, everybody's yes, 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 we want this product. And it just stops. And it's because in a business buying, you know, we have a business buying group. Somebody is like, eh. IT doesn't have time to work on this mm-hmm. or, oh, that guy is out for three months. We're going to pick it up later. Or, well, we talked about, we decided to buy a refrigerator with this rather than <laughs> invest in your product. You don't know why. So marketing often gets involved in sort of those 
nudges or nurtures um, mm-hmm. to help sales keep the deal going forward. So it, it's a it, the partnership is super important, and and I I think the one thing I will always say to marketers is, and this comes down to the data driven, is know your numbers. Know what your business goal is. Know yeah. how big your pipeline is supposed to be because that is what you should be held accountable for. Random acts of marketing do not make companies successful. So uh, let's turn to um, the idea of data-driven analytics and storytelling to present a strategy more effectively. Storytelling, mm-hmm. uh, you mentioned that uh, your background as a writer, uh, you were working for publications, and certainly there's a storytelling aspect to the way in which journalism uh, mm-hmm. progresses and, and pursues uh, the story, if you will. How can we use data to tell a story? You know, How can oh. marketing do that? So, I mean, if you think about the job of a reporter or the job of a journalist, mm-hmm. you could be somebody who writes an op-ed and say, this is what I think, and drop the mic and walk away, right? But most reporters and journalists are trained to use data, statistics, real uh, quotes from, from people they've interviewed to establish their point of view or establish facts or share facts about an incident um, or some some kind of something that's a trend, for example. So very much the same. And, you know, you tell a story using data. So one example, I mean, there's different kinds of stories, right? You could tell a story while you're raising money to get more funding from a VC. You can tell a story to someone you're trying to sell a product to. It's, there's a there's an arc, it's called a story arc, where you kind of throw out something that's sort of shocking or a big problem they identify with, and then you unpack it like this, I did this thing, then this happened, and there's a sort of a tension point, and here's how I fixed it. So there's a, there's a lot of ideas, and there are a lot of like actual frameworks out there that help you tell a story. The, the hardest thing, and I uh, actually one of the founders of First Up, Greg Shove, who's now at Section 4, um, they do a lot of marketing with Scott Galloway, who's a quite famous uh, journalist and, and uh, pundit. He taught me a lot about, about stories, like how to, what's that story arc? I also work with a company called Firebrick, Bob Wright, who mm-hmm. helps companies determine their co- positioning and their company narrative. Oh. So similar, kind of old world, new world, how do you fix it? And he actually starts the story with, these customers have these results. Mm-hmm. Everyone goes, oh my God, these are amazing. How did that happen? Well, it used to be we did it this way and now we can do it this way and here's how. Mm-hmm. So there, there's, there's a lot of ways to do it. It's just you'll have to make sure that you understand what is going to work for your company. So I think that what sometimes is missing in stories and how stories flow into messaging, for example, because the only reason you tell your company narrative is you want to have a position in the market. And then you've got to break that down into a website, into an email, into what sales says. Yeah. Is, um, and something sure, memorable, right, yeah, Allison? Something memorable, right? Something that people can remember. And a lot of that is about being empathetic to the person you're trying to sell to. Mm-hmm. You know, like I said earlier, they don't really care that this widget does this thing. It's like, what's in it for me? Mm-hmm. And that's where when you are talking about the consumerization, it's kind of like, why do I need this thing? B2C is really good at saying, you know, taking all your in- Instagram data and going, oh, it looks like you need one of those neck knuckle things because you're <laughs> <Yeah>. hunching. <laughs> and I bought it. I know. It, it, it works. It works. I hope they call me and ask me for a comment. But, yeah. you know, it's 
So, uh, yeah. It, it seems like uh, part of the storytelling uh, art is problem definition. It is. Absolutely. Naming, um, in fact, Bob and Firebrick, he says, name the problem. Right. So that's actually the most, that's something I learned. Uh, Firebrick does um, positioning for a lot of really big companies um, in, in Silicon Valley. Um, they're excellent at what they do. And we work with them um, on with some other companies, smaller companies and great, great people. And and I that was one thing I learned when you're struggling with positioning, just saying you do this thing for these people, like the way we used to do it in the old days, like yeah. the PR way. It's not, you got to name the problem because right. then people go, oh, oh, I get what you're trying to solve. And then all yeah. flows from there. I've always noticed that in in if I go to a website, a homepage of a company mm -hmm. I'm not familiar with, you know, if I come from LinkedIn, I see yeah. who somebody's working with. Mm -hmm. That first above the fold sort of message that I'm getting from that website, mm -hmm. if I don't see a problem defined, I feel, oh, that's a missed opportunity. You know, tell yeah, me what absolutely. the problem is. Tell I don't want to see problem. you brag. I want to tell me what my problem mm -hmm. is that I didn't know I had. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And well, sometimes it's you stuff you don't know you have. And sometimes it's stuff you're like, I've got that problem. Yeah, and that's, why are that's, you the best one? It's differentiating, right? That's like, right. Why yeah. us? So yeah. are there any other ideas, Allison, that you would um, recommend that demand generation people work on to best prepare them to potentially expand their capabilities, expand their opportunities for, you know, new roles? We know there's many demand gen folks that are in transition right now, you know, and obviously you've been successful. You've been in management positions where you had to build teams quickly. You're looking for talented people. What can uh, some of these uh, marketing folks do? right now that would put in the in the best uh, light? You know, we talked earlier about staying in your lane versus not staying in your lane. I yeah. think for anyone looking, do not stay in your lane. You should be, if you're not a great writer, become a great writer. There's so many, I'm not saying go use chat GPT or copy AI or Jasper or whatever, but like it could help with the blank page, you know, mm -hmm. and then you can finesse it. Like get really good at copywriting. So many people are terrible. They use jargon, like get that right. Um, the mm -hmm. other thing is if you're a demand gen person and you don't really know much about product marketing, learn about product marketing. Mm -hmm. um, product marketing is a super cool job. So it's between marketing, sales, and product. And, mm -hmm. you know, they, they're sometimes responsible for messaging. Sometimes mm -hmm. they do it better than other times. But, but generally, how do we, how products work? How do we drive adoption? Understanding the mechanics of that job, I think would be really helpful so that demand gen people themselves can be empathetic when it comes time for a product launch and seriously help the company by launching with the right information and the right emphasis. Yes. Um, another thing we talked about storytelling, you know, data, I think learning to look at data and derive insights. So not just data for data's sake, but insights. And then how do you tell that a story? I'll give one example there. You're developing a strategy, your marketing plan. You're saying we need to, you know, do this thing to get this kind of result. Well, why that? That's taking data and saying, we have to do this thing because this is a gap we have. Mm -hmm. This our competitors kicking our butts. This we don't know. And we should find out. So mm -hmm. it's it's getting good at the the critical thinking. And then the final thing I, I think that's really important for for demand gen leaders who have been in, you know, in the trenches for longer than like probably my vintage um, mm -hmm. is 
staying up on trends. And one trend I think is really important is design, like visual identity. So not just like a website, but like all the things that go into it, brand, mm -hmm. how your videos look, the words you use, are they mm -hmm. likable? Because the buying, the buying set is changing. You know, every year goes by, there are younger people making decisions. So yes. right now we're sort of in a TikTok, Instagram world. And I'm not saying as a BB company to go have Instagram or TikTok going, but if it's some way to help to help connect to your customers if that's your audience, then you need to learn about it. You know, we shouldn't even have to say mm -hmm. that you uh, have to consider how your website looks on a mobile device, but oh my gosh, yeah, I mean- yeah. uh... That's, um, to me, I'm like already gone. If it looks like <laughs> the stuff is all over the place, but everything, and, and frankly, that's a that's somebody picking a poor platform too, but. Exactly. Yeah. Well, this has been great. I really do appreciate the time that you spent with us, Allison, yeah. to uh, cover things that are really important uh, to marketing people in improving their their um, capabilities and also their contributions to organizations. So thanks again for being, being with us today. Yeah. And thank you for having me. It was a great conversation. And thanks for the good questions. My pleasure, Allison. Thanks again to our guest on today's show. If you want to learn more about the demand generation services of InsightUp, please visit our website at insightup.com. While you're there, take our upskilling survey and find out more about this special research program by clicking on the Upskill Journeys page of our website. See you next time.